0: Acts two forty-two through forty-seven, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning, y'all. Good to see you guys. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, we are continuing our sermon series called Thrive. Um, you know, I just want to, as, as before we start, give a shout out to... Um, to Gabby Tienemann, um but beyond that, to the entire drama production team over at EHS. The Windstorm took out their entire set. And um, uh, as a former tech director myself and uh, uh, a wannabe thespian, um, man, my heart hurt for our community and especially for those students and their families after they have put in so much work uh, to make that happen. So um, 2020, man, 2020 keeps happening. Uh, it also took out our outside tent. Uh, don't worry, we are going to continue to have outside gatherings. We just need to reformulate and uh, potentially get a stronger tent. Uh, a couple things to help you stay connected. I throw this up every week just in case there's somebody who is like, oh, I meant to do that and I haven't done it yet. Or you're new and you haven't yet. So just to encourage you to down, download the Church Center app. Uh, it is an important way to stay connected to us. It is an easy way to register to attend one of our services uh, and uh, to get information, you can also give, of course, through it. And if you haven't yet, I would encourage you to go ahead and text Yeah Buddy uh, to 618 3210 That will get you on our um, texting platform, which will allow us to push out timely information to you uh, so that you can stay informed as things occur. It is, texting is these days the, uh, the most reliable, quickest, and easiest way to connect with one another. All right, we are in this sermon series looking at the early church. Um, and we're doing it specifically because uh, they, they were under tremendous stress, right? The the early church, we look back at it and it's like, man, that was such an, an idyllic time and, and it had such a vibrant experience. But sometimes I think we forget that it was a time of tremendous stress, right? The early church exploded during the Passover feast in, in Jerusalem and, and you had Thousands of people suddenly needing housing and food, and and um and it was creating not just internal turmoil as the believers had to take care of one another and 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 upset all their normal rhythms and open up their homes, but it was also creating turmoil in the uh, the culture around them. So it was a time of stress and conflict and loss and suffering. Um, but here's the thing: I mean, when we read through it, the reason we're so compelled is they didn't just survive. They thrived, right? They, they they actually had increased joy and freedom and boldness, and, and they had this rich sense of, of community that that uh, many of us, when we read through that man, we just it sets us longing to have a similar experience, right? So we're looking at what made them tick. That's what we're doing. We're we're sitting in in our time of suffering, our time of of, of difficulty, and and examining, right? Because if we want to experience what they had. We need to do what they did, right? We need to value what they valued. And so over the previous weeks, what we've taken a look at is the fact that they were driven by their purpose, right? Their purpose was to love God and love others, right? Um, uh, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophet, right? So, so they were driven by their purpose. They were fulfilling their commission. Their commission was to be disciples who make disciples, right? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth, and and you're going to be disciples who make disciples. And in the midst of of their purpose, fulfilling their commission, they were devoted to the core practices of grace, the holy habits that drove them back to grace and increased their gratitude, right? We've seen that, that they were a community on mission, Right, They were devoted to the fellowship, that really, really rich word, koinonia, that at the heart of it means sharing. They, they shared love with one another and then generously moved in love to those outside of their community. Right, They were a community, a rich experience of, of shared love together on mission, sharing that love with those outside of their community. And as a community on mission, they were devoted to the three holy habits of um, prayer and the word and worship. Now, we looked at prayer last week, the prayers, and we talked about how that wasn't just individual habits of prayer, it was that, but it was more than that, it was shared times of prayers, right? When it talks about the prayers, it talked about the hours of the prayers, right? That they joined in these rhythms as a community, right? So that, so that three times a day, morning, lunch, and evening, the entire community was coming together in a time of prayer, right? Uh, we're going to be looking at the word next week. This morning, we're going to be looking at worship. Um, let's start here. We are all worshipers, right? We are all worshipers, whether you're religious or not religious, whether you are um, uh, interested in in religious things or not interested in religious things. We're all worshipers, right? And and that's not a religious observation. That's a human observation. That's a psychological observation. We are all looking to pour ourselves out to something that's going to make us right. We're all looking to pour ourselves out to something that is going to make us whole, right? And that can be anything, right? Some people pour themselves out to their jobs with the idea that somehow this, you know, when I, when I attain a certain significance or I gain enough respect or I earn enough money, then I'll be whole, then I'll be significant, then I'll be secure, then, then I'll be able to have the joy that is eluding me, right? Some people pour themselves out to their relationships, um, to their significant other, they pour themselves out to their kids, they, they pour themselves out to anybody who 's showing them attention and affection because they just are desperate to to be uh, to feel approved of and loved and, and um, some people pour themselves out to uh, their financial portfolio or or strangely enough, to their sports teams. Um, I read this morning in the news about this uh, this new experience of uh, sports fans. You know fan is short for fanatic, right? Uh, and a fanatic is an old word for a worshiper. That's what that means. So fans are worshipers. And, and there's this whole group of people like these, these uh, season ticket holders that are like going through significant depression because they can't gather with their people to have their experience of Fanaticism of worship. They're actually dropping into depression, right? Because they can't worship in the way that they that they that they have chosen to worship. We are all worshipers. We all pour ourselves out to something in order to get something back, right? Um, our word worship comes from an old English word, worship which shows some of its meaning, right? It's what we assign worth to. We worship something we decide is worthy of our worship, something that is worthy of the pouring out of our lives, right? Because whatever it is, we're going to pour ourselves out to it. We're going to pour out energy and attention. We're going to put a bunch of mental effort into it. A lot of times, we're just going to spend a bunch of money in that direction. Uh, We're going to sacrifice to what we worship, right? We are going to pour ourselves out uh, in, in sacrifice and here 's the thing: the things that we worship generally aren 't bad things, right these, these things that are idols in our lives they 're not bad things they 're generally good things. The problem is we 've taken these good things and turned them into ultimate things right we 've taken a relationship or our job, or our ability to be productive or, or, or our desire to produce or, or our enjoyment of of rooting for a team, and we elevate that experience. Um, kind of an existential level where it's not just something that I do, it is something that is going to give me what I crave, right? And you know this if you're a fan. Like, this is one of the reasons I had to step away from sports, right? When my team won, man, I was on cloud nine. And if they lost, I was a grump for the next 48 hours, right? Like, like it had the uh, the ability to actually control my emotional state. You know what I'm saying? That goes beyond just like, yeah, I enjoy watching the game. Right? That steps into, I'm actually looking to this game to give me something outside of myself I desperately need. And if it doesn't, I am totally knocked off balance. Right? John Calvin, um, the famous reformer, said, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. A perpetual factory of idols. Right? And that's because, we'll put it this way, our worshipers are broken. Right. We all have an internal worshiper, a thing in us that, that seeks something to worship. It's always trying to find its true north. Right. Once it finds its true north, that thing, it wants to pour itself out at its feet, uh, so, so that it can, can give us what we desperately need, uh, to make us be what we desperately want to be. Right. And, and the problem is we're continually finding the wrong things to pour ourselves out at. Right? Our worshiper is broken. We, we don't know our true north, and, and so we're continually pouring ourselves out at the wrong altars. We're continually pursuing small g gods, right? false gods, idols that, that can't do for us what they promise to do. I guarantee you, this is going on in your life. Guarantee it. Right? If you want to know what your small g god is, if you want to know what your false altar is, it's really not that hard to figure out. Right? Just Just ask. Um, what do you look to to fulfill you? What do you look to outside of yourself to make you significant or secure or approved of and feel worthy of love or to give you pleasure and genuine rest? What, what do you look to outside of yourself? And what, if you lost it, would you feel completely devastated by the loss? Like, not only do you look to it to give you something outside of yourself, but if you were to lose it, you wouldn't just be sad. You would be completely devastated, and, and um, life would basically be over. You, you figure that out, you're already on, on the track, right? You're going to start figuring out what your small, small G God is. We all have them. We all have them because we all have these worshipers that have lost their their true, their true north, right? You know what f- fixes that compass, You know what fixes the broken worshiper so that you can actually discover your true north again? Uh, True worship. True worship fixes your worshiper. It resets your compass. The early church devoted itself to worship, uh, not just to express their praise and their reverence for God, um, but to tear their hearts away from their idols. Right? They did it to express their reverence and their praise for God, but they did it to reset their hearts to be set on the God who is worthy of their praise and reverence. Right, It, it aligns our devotion with the God who is worthy of our devotion. It exposes those things that, that we're turning to that aren't God and resets our worshiper to be set on the one who is God. Now, specifically, they were devoted to worshiping In the breaking of the bread, right? In Acts 2.42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's next week. To the fellowship. We did that two weeks ago and three weeks ago. The breaking of bread and the prayer. So the breaking of bread. What a funny thing to talk about, the breaking of bread. Uh, This is the Bible's way of talking about communion. What we call communion, right? The breaking of the bread. In fact, the Bible calls it the breaking of bread and the Lord's Supper. Those are the two terms that, that, when you're reading through the New Testament, you'll see it referred to. And it's worth pausing to remind ourselves why. Why is it called the breaking of bread? What is its history? What is its context? How does this how does this have any meaning to us? Well, let's begin with this. The word, the phrase, breaking of bread, simply meant sharing a meal. Right. The the phrase itself had no significant meaning. Um, Before the time of Christ or or in the broader culture, it just meant sharing a meal. It'd be like us saying, let's go grab some grub, right? Can you imagine somebody 2,000 years from now translating uh, one of our conversations and one of you is like, let's go grab some grub and somebody's going to have to stand up front and and explain that meant let's go share a meal, okay? Uh, The breaking of bread was simply a a, a shorthand way of saying that, that they would share a meal, right? If you take a look down in verse 46, it says, and day by day they attended the temple together and they were breaking bread in their homes. In that context, what it means is, is they were sharing meals, right? They were going to the temple together and worshiping and then they were all going back and having these communal meals together, right? So breaking a bread um, meant sharing a meal. But, but they weren't just devoted to sharing meals. Now, obviously, they were. And there's a lot to be said for that, I'll I'll tell you that. Hospitality and the sharing of meals is a profoundly uh, personal and and powerful experience. But but it doesn't just say they were devoted to breaking bread, does it? It says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. With the definite article, Luke in in Acts is telling us that that he's not just talking about Sharing meals. That is something that they shared, and that was a powerful form of their experiencing community, right? But beyond that, they were sharing the breaking of bread, the meal that Jesus established and commanded that we repeat. Let me give you a little bit of history about this meal. We've got to go way, way, way back in Jewish history. I mean, all the way back almost to the beginning of the Bible. In the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we find the Jewish people uh, were enslaved uh, for 500 years in the nation of Egypt. And at the end of that enslavement, God raised up a, uh, a hero who would come and, and deliver them, right? A, a guy named Moses. And, um, and, and he came and, and God told him to go to Pharaoh and, um, and declare, let my people go. Right, so Moses went with Aaron because Moses stuttered and didn't feel confident enough to talk on his own, and uh, and they would go to Pharaoh and they'd be like, "Let my people go," and the Pharaoh would laugh and say, "Yeah, not not going to happen. This entire nation is is in slavery to Egypt, and they're necessary to our economy." Um, and so God brought a series of judgments, right? Ten plagues. Each time the Pharaoh said no, God brought another judgment that judged actually another local deity that the the Egyptians worshipped as a way of God declaring his sovereignty and his superiority uh, over Egypt and over their gods. And and then finally, on the 10th plague, God declared he was going to send the angel of death to kill all the firstborn in the entire nation uh, in a single night. It was going to be a terrible and terrifying night. But he told Moses to communicate to the Israelites how to prepare for this. They were to sacrifice a lamb. They were to take the blood and paint it on the doorposts and the lintel. So the doorposts of their home. And the lintel is that, that bar that, that goes across the top. right? So signifying that anybody who enters this home has entered through the blood of the lamb. right? And then that night they were to prepare the lamb in a very specific way. They were to prepare unleavened bread. You're like, what is that? That means without yeast. So it doesn't rise, right? It's quicker to make. It is, so the whole thing was you, they were to eat with their shoes on so that they were ready to run. There was, he gave all these instructions about how they were to share this meal during this night. And what God said was, when the angel of death comes and sees the blood on your doorposts, he will pass over your home. And so that night, They did. They sacrificed a lamb. They put the blood on the door. Uh, They sat and and shared this meal, and I'm sure they did it with fear and trembling. This was not a night of celebration. This was not a night of of rambunctious joy. I'm sure this was a night of of solemn and and holy fear. Um, And then as they emerged from the homes in the morning, they emerged to a nation in chaos and in mourning. And the Pharaoh finally said, get out (laughs) this is too much. So he releases them, and and, uh, they go, and they pass through the Red Sea, and uh, Moses leads them to Mount Sinai, where uh, the nation of Israel enters into a covenant with God called the Mosaic Covenant, what we would call the Old Covenant or the Law, uh, where Moses went up and came down with the Ten Commandments, and then in addition to the Ten Commandments, there were 500 and some odd other commandments that, that God ended up creating between the nation of Israel And himself, they became his covenant people through the Mosaic Covenant. Part of the Mosaic Covenant actually stipulated that they were to celebrate the memory of that event through the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and and the Feast of Passover. So every year, the Jewish people would have the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover in order to look back and remember this solemn event when God delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians, crossed the Red Sea, and into um, freedom. And so flash forward now all the way to A.D. 33, or right around there. We don't know exactly. I think A.D. 33 is my best guess. Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem on a Thursday, and, and it's the night of the Passover. This is the night that they are to, it's the first night of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they are to have the Passover meal together this night. So the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, where are we going to do this thing? Because it takes a lot of preparation, it's going to take some time, this is an entire meal, right? You don't just sit down casually to a Passover meal, this took a ton of preparation. And uh, Jesus told them exactly where to go, and they went into an upper room, and, and they prepared the meal. And, um, and then they shared the Passover meal Together on this Thursday night. This is called the Last Supper. This is um, a significant night. But the context of the Last Supper, I want you to get this, is they're gathering for a meal looking back to the Passover. Looking back to that dramatic event when God passed over the firstborn um, because they were covered with the blood of the Lamb. When God delivered His people from the angel of death and didn't allow any harm to come to their firstborns. This night, though, was going to be unlike any Passover feast that had ever been celebrated. First of all, Jesus shows up and washes their feet, which is this really weird thing the servant was supposed to do, and he knocks everybody off balance, and and everybody's going into the meal like, wait a minute, that's not the order of events, not the way things are supposed to go. and, 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 um, uh, And then during the meal, uh, Jesus like hijacks the whole thing and kind of redefines the Passover, like right in the middle, right? Um, he's like, you do this to look back. You do this to look back to Egypt and to remember God's protection from, from, from the death of your firstborn, right? You look back to the lamb that was slaughtered to keep you safe and to the law that came out of that event, the Mosaic law that, that was the old covenant established on Sinai. Tonight, I'm giving this meal a new meaning. Tonight, it's no longer about looking back to Egypt. Tonight, it's no longer about your historical deliverance from oppression. Tonight, it's about your deliverance from sin itself. Tonight, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. Tonight, this, this cup represents my blood in which I will enact a new covenant between God's people and God. And every time you do this from now on, every time you gather to have this meal, to break this bread and to have this cup, you will do it in remembrance of me. Now the disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Uh, I kind of love that, right? They're like, okay, okay. Jesus, whatever you say, right? This is your body. Okay, this is what? Your blood? All right, okay, right? You're the Messiah. You say weird stuff all the time. Um, I guess we'll just be cool with that. Um, But they have no idea, but it wouldn't be long until they would. Because in a few short hours, Jesus was going to be betrayed, right? That was Thursday night. In the early hours of Friday morning, uh, Judas betrays Jesus in the garden. He was handed over. Uh, He went through the kangaroo courts, he was flogged, Uh, he was humiliated to the best of their ability, and early on Friday morning, he was crucified, and he hung on the cross, um, and then he died, having his body broken, and having his blood shed, the true and better Passover lamb was slaughtered so that the angel of death would pass over those who were under the blood. The firstborn of God died so that those of us who were born under the weight of our guilt, who compounded our shame, through the worship of idols, might be forgiven, cleansed and made new. And then he was raised from the dead on the third day, Sunday morning. Um, and it was the proclamation that no further sacrifice was necessary. Right, They had to sacrifice the, the atonement lamb every single year, over and over and over and over again, because... No sacrifice of an animal could ever completely cleanse the conscience of those who came, so the writer of Hebrews tells us, right? There was no ability to remove sin except through a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God. And when he was raised from the dead, it was a proclamation that no further sacrifice was necessary. Jesus had died for the ungodly once and for all so that those who believe in him might be forever made safe and brought into the security of being covered by his blood. Anyone who would believe in him, anyone, Jew or Gentile, would become part of his covenant people, those that had been brought through the Red Sea, brought from death to life through his death and resurrection, brought to a new covenant with a new law. In fact, that night, Jesus is like, hey, y'all, I got a new law for you too, right? A new commandment, love one another. Right? Love one another. And it's by this that people will know you're my disciples. Right? And that came to be known as the law of Christ, the law of the new covenant. That Passover meal, now, instead of being done once a year to look back to a historical event, was something that was done whenever they gathered as a present reminder of the true Lamb of God. It was a shared experience of worship. So it's no surprise that the early church was devoted to the Lord's Supper. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this meal, like after Jesus was raised from the dead, I would love to have been there when, when they started like parsing it all out, you know, like remembering the events, remembering what Jesus said, and they're like, hey, wh- what? That's what he meant? Holy cow! Right? And oh yeah, he said, whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So we got to do this, right? Not once a year, not, not every once in a while. Like whenever we gather, we get to remember him. We get to celebrate him. The early church was devoted to sharing the breaking of bread. This is, by the way, why Trailhead celebrates communion every week. Right? And I'm not I'm saying this to condemn anybody, right? This isn't me slamming churches that do it once a quarter or once a year or whatever. Uh, Jesus didn't say how often to do it. He just said, whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me, right? But when I read through the New Testament, I see such a passion around communion, such a passion around the breaking of bread that, that to me, when we were setting this whole church up, it just made sense to me, man, this needs to be the center point of the gathering of our worship. This needs to be the high point with which we, we at the, after we sing his praise and, and are humbled in adoration and reverence to his character, and after we open his word and, and study about his character and who we are and who he is and what he's done to meet us, man, let's, let's just make this high point where, where we come together and are devoted to the breaking of bread, devoted to the Lord's Supper, devoted to communion. So why is it so important? Right? Why is it so important that we are uh, to come together on a regular basis to celebrate communion? Right? Why? Why is it vital that we do it regularly, and why is it vital that we do it together? Right? Why, why can't we just go do communion on our own? You know, like like in our own little homes with our own families every time we have a meal, right? or, or, or just by ourselves if, if we're hanging out in our house. Why, why can't we just do communion any Anywhere? Why do we need to gather? And, and, and why, uh, in a time like this, when we can't do it um, in person, do we need to do it virtually together? Why is it important for it to be a shared experience? Let me give you three reasons. Three reasons why I believe uh, it is vital that we are devoted to the Lord's Supper. First of all, it reorients our hearts to obey the great command. It reorients our hearts to obey the great command to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It it resets the true north of our hearts. It helps reset us and free us from from that that incessant idol-making that is part of our broken human nature. Right? It is, if we are incessantly creating idols, I feel like it's pretty important that we are regularly resetting our true north, that we are coming and worshiping God. Right. Every single time we share communion, we are, we are confronted with physical symbols that reveal to us a spiritual reality. Every time you touch that bread, I love that it's physical, tactile, every time you touch that bread, every time you tear it off the loaf or, or break your wafer, you are reminded that Christ's body was broken for you. Every time you take that cup, you are viscerally reminded that, that He took the cup of bitterness and drank it down to the dregs so that you could get the cup of sweetness forgiveness and the removal of shame, right? Every time you come to the table, you are confronted with the physical elements that remind you of your physical Savior. We are not simply talking about a good moral story. We're not simply talking about a, a, a figure that may or may not have been historical. We're, not, we're talking about a real man who lived a real life and died a real death so that he could procure for you a real forgiveness. It also reminds us as we are confronted with this reality that grace is free. When you come to the table, it is free. The only requirement is that you are a believer in Jesus. It's the only requirement. It is free, but it is a reminder as well that while grace is free for you, it was not free for him. It is free for us to receive it, but it cost him everything to give it. We are reminded that we were so sinful he had to die, but we were so loved he was glad to die. It reminds us that the heart of worship is loving God. Loving the God who loves us. And I think that's an important reset for our hearts. Um, One of the the things that we've done in our culture is we've turned worship into uh, performance art. You know, we talk about worship as my bringing my best to God, right? And we pursue some sort of emotional experience through song or, or through praise. Or, and, and we come and we offer ourselves. In fact, some, some of the songs that we don't use we even talk about that. I've come to offer myself to you as if, as if somehow worship was about me giving my best to God. Which that's not worship. Worship is responding to the fact that God gave His best to us. Worship isn't about me impressing God with my devotion. Worship is my being impressed with a God so devoted to me. He was willing to send His one and only firstborn Son to die in my place as my substitute that I might be forgiven. It's not about us performing for God. It's about us responding to God. And we need this Today, more than ever, in such a performance-driven society, a culture that, that, that is all about performing, even in worship, to be reminded that, that true worship is about responding. Right? When our selfish and self-serving hearts are confronted with His self-giving love, it changes us. It awakens within us a responding devotion to His devotion, a responding love to His love. I respond in gratitude to his grace. So we need the breaking of bread. We need to worship together. First of all, because it reorients our hearts to obey the great commandment. Second of all, it provokes our hearts to love each other through the shared experience. Part of the reason we don't go do it on our own is because we need to do it in the messiness of community. Right? Um, The early church... uh, shared the Lord's Supper as a, a a meal, a shared meal, a communal meal, right? There's there's no specific right or wrong way to do it. That's just how they did it. They had a huge meal together, and, and, and it came to be known as the love feast, right? And, and so at the love feast, they would come together, and they would, they would have this huge meal, and in, in the midst of that meal, I'm sure there would be a moment where they, they recognized the breaking of the bread and the cup as his body, and his blood, but very much like Jesus did with the, that first Passover meal, the early church shared this as a community experience. Now, here's the thing there's no way to have this shared experience of worship without looking across the table at other people who are sharing the experience with you. There's no way to, to have this experience of the worship of God without looking around and recognizing you're having this experience with others, and some of those people you're really going to like. Some of those people are going to be like, oh, that's so cool. I'm so, that person became a believer and I'm praying for them and I share the gospel with them and they became a believer and it's so exciting to watch them take communion and then there's that guy. He annoys me so much. He's so rude and selfish and he says stupid things and yeah, I get it, yeah. We're all saved by grace. So he can have grace too. Do I really have to have grace with Him in the same space at the same time? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. See, the communal aspect of sharing communion not only reignites our responding love to God, it provokes us to confront our desire just to love people we like. It confronts our self-centered, selfish desire to just love people who res- who look like us, who represent us, who reflect us back to us, and to actually love people who have different convictions and and different ideas and different personalities and 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 people that make us not really enjoy being around them because maybe they show us things about ourselves we don't like to see. Right? There are going to be people who make life easy and people who make life hard. Listen, that's a necessary part of the process. The Corinthians, a little bit outside of the early, early church, but still part of the early church, um, started having a lot of problems with this, right? At their love feast, the Corinthians started having cliques where where all the wealthy people would sit together and, and all the Republicans would sit together and all the Democrats would sit together and... And, and, and all the, the poor people would sit together. And, and some people were feasting, and some people were going home hungry. And, and, um, and they just turned it into this really divisive kind of ugly thing. And, and, and Paul's like, look, y'all, you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore. Right? To celebrate the Lord's Supper means love has to be at the center of the feast, and love's no longer at the center of your feast. We need that shared experience because by default we're going to be selfish. By default, we're going to be prideful. By default, we're not going to want to forgive. We're not going to want to extend grace. We're not going to to want to look at people who are different from us and and give them the same grace we know we need. There's nothing easy about this, but the struggle doesn't reduce its value. It increases its value. It doesn't doesn't make it less important. It makes it more important. If you're having a hard time worshiping with the people in your church, praise God! It's an opportunity for you to grow in love. Don't be like, oh, it's time for me to check out and go find a church where I like them better. Right? Don't run from it. The shared experience of worship is actually an invitation to push into love. Right? To love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Worshiping together provokes us to respond to God and extend grace. There's a quote in, uh, in your digital bulletin uh, from a good friend of mine, Jonathan McIntosh. I loved this quote. Um, he said, the communion table reminds us that we have a God who invites his enemies to dinner. I love that. And if we have a God who invites his enemies to dinner, we need to be prepared to extend grace. And learn to love people who are different from us in the sharing of that dinner, in the sharing of of that breaking of bread. Right? Worship isn't just about praise and adoration and good feelings of devotion. It's not about turning on good worship music in your car and having positive, warm, vibing feelings toward God. Worship is about those things. It is about praise and it is about, about devotion, right? It's also about reverence, it's also about obedience. Right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he went on and said, people will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Right? Worship both provokes us to love God in response to his love, but also equips us to love others when we don't find them lovable. Thirdly, um, it equips us. To fulfill our commission to be witnesses of his death and resurrection so the sharing of communion the sharing of the breaking of bread awakens a responding love to god equips us in that love to love others who are different from us and challenge us to love our neighbors we love ourselves and it equips us to fulfill our commission Um, part of the reason that we are to share communion together Part of the reason that we are to break bread together, whenever you do this, whenever you gather um, together, is because it is a public declaration of faith. It is not a private experience of worship. It was never intended to be. The breaking of bread is not about a private experience of worship. It is a public declaration of faith. The gathering of God's people around this memorial feast um, looks back at Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, and looks forward to his return. So it reorients us back to, to the foundation that Jesus died and rose again, and our hope, right? Where we've come from and where we're going to, that Jesus died and rose again and then ascended, and he has promised to return and, and set all things right, right? It, it not only recenters our heart on God's love, um, it, it not only awakens our love toward others, but it, it proclaims God's plan. In the same way, Passover wasn't just about Israel. They had this huge Passover feast. It wasn't just about Israel. It was about Israel declaring to all the nations that their God was sovereign, that their God was supreme. This was a God who could deliver and protect and preserve His covenant people. In the same way, communion isn't just about our personal experience of grace. It's about proclaiming the plan of the God of grace. We proclaim We're told, the Lord's death and resurrection until He comes. Every time we share communion, we declare to the world the death and resurrection of Christ, His plan to redeem and restore. We proclaim, this is what I believe. This is where I stand. Under His blood, in in His forgiveness. Not in my rightness, but in His righteousness. I am rooted and grounded in His love and I am made strong in that love to love others. And we declare, if you believe in Jesus, you can join me at the feast. If you come to the Savior, you also will come to this table. It is a declaration of mission and love. Now, fitting enough, it is at that point in the service where it is time for us to share Communion.